from the first epistle of John, the fifth chapter, verse 18. First John 5, verse 18, and our subject is perseverance. <clears throat> we know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. In this verse, St. John tells us that whosoever is born of God does not continue in sin. The tense of the verb in Greek implies continuous action. So that St. John is not declaring that the believer is sinless, but that he does not abide continually in a sin. Moreover, he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, or, more accurately, keepeth him. The meaning is that Jesus Christ, the begotten of God, keepeth those who are born again. And that wicked one toucheth him not. Last week, as we studied the meaning of the Incarnation, when we saw that the virgin birth is a type of the regeneration of all Christians who are born, not of blood, nor of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, we saw also the significance of this verse. Satan cannot touch, that is, lay hold on and hold down sever the believer from God. Satan was able to touch Adam in the Garden of Eden, to lay hold of him and to sever him from God. But this is not true of the Christian. We know that whosoever is begotten of God sinneth not, but he that was begotten of God keepeth him, and the evil one toucheth him not. Two things are immediately apparent from this, the doctrine of perseverance. When we studied a little earlier the doctrine of repentance, we saw that the English word repentance, because it was connected with penance, conveyed an entirely false idea of what repentance is, that in fact the word repentance in some respects was worse than the translation of do penance. So too is the doctrine of perseverance. The English does not have an adequate word to express the doctrine. Now as the doctrine is normally interpreted, it means that those who are the saved of God 
persevere unto their life's end in their profession of faith, so that once saved, always saved. This is clearly true. But it does reduce the doctrine, in a sense, to its lowest common denominator. It is indeed the truth, but it is only a fraction of the truth of the doctrine of perseverance. And the biblical doctrine has been limited precisely because the English word, in a sense, imposes limits to it. The doctrine of perseverance is not a grin and bear it and you will survive philosophy. Now, this is the way it is usually interpreted. Since you are saved, nothing the devil can ever do will deflect you from your salvation, and you're going to last to the end as the redeemed. True enough, but the emphasis is all wrong. When Jeremiah, for example, in Jeremiah 32, 36 to 44, speaks of the remnant, he speaks of them as those who will restore the land. When Isaiah in 54 verses 10 through 17 speaks of the elect of God who shall persevere, he declares that in the fullness of time they shall have conquered the earth and changed the whole face of the earth from pole to pole. He is talking about perseverance. The saints shall persevere. Now we have some things about the doctrine also in the New Testament. Our Lord said, And I give unto them my own eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. And St. Paul says in Romans 8, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature, shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Christian is indefectible. He will never permanently and defect from the faith. He may be shaken, but he cannot defect from it. But, as St. Paul also said in Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. It also means that we not only stand in the faith, that we accomplish in the faith. God has begun something in us which shall be accomplished. 
Now, it is an interesting fact that whenever the doctrine of perseverance has been downplayed, soft-bettled, or denied, another doctrine takes its place. The doctrine of the perseverance and the indefectibility of the church. Now, John Henry Blunt, a high church Anglican of the last century, defined this doctrine thus. First, the perpetuity of the church, by which it is free from failure and succession of members, and second, the inerrancy and infallibility of the church, by which it is free from failure in holding and declaring the truth. In other words, when the doctrine is denied to believers, as it is by blunt, it is then laid hold of by an institution. Now, when Dr. Blunt denied the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, their indefectibility, he denied also predestination, he denied also sovereign grace, and he said he could not accept these doctrines because they tampered with man's free will. In other words, his reason was not scriptural. It rested in his confidence that man was in effect his own God, having absolute free will. Whereas the Bible, of course, says only God has absolute free will, and ours is a secondary, a conditioned freedom. As a result, Blunt could not, therefore, ascribe this doctrine to man. So, to keep man independent as his own God, in effect, he denied the doctrine of the perseverance of saints to man, but he ascribed it to the church and built up the doctrine to include inerrancy and infallibility. So he said the church can never make a mistake. It's infallible. It's indefectible. More than a few churches have held that doctrine. Whenever they do so, they always deny the doctrine to the believer. Which is a very interesting fact. Now, of course, they ground this doctrine when they apply it to the church on Matthew 16, verses 15 through 19. Our Lord said to his disciples, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto you, uh, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now how shall we interpret this passage? 
Well, we have interpretations of it from the early church fathers. We have it from the early Middle Ages in one of the great church fathers of that era, Alfred. So we have from the early centuries a knowledge of what the church thought about it, long before Blunt came along or others who in the past few centuries have held to this doctrine. First of all, the point these men made was that not only is salvation of God, but our Lord declares that the knowledge that comes to the redeemed is from the Lord also. For flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Not only is our salvation the act of God, but our eyes are open so that we can now see things we could not see before. Sin having darkened our understanding. God in Christ opens up our eyes and things are revealed to us that were previously impossible for us to grasp. Then our Lord says, Thou art Peter, Petros, and upon this rock, Petra, I will build my church. Now what is Peter and Petros, uh, Petra and Petros. Peter is not called the rock. Alfred knew this, Tertullian knew it, the church fathers spoke often of this. Peter means of the rock, belonging to the rock. So that the meaning of Peter's name is that because he has confessed Christ as the Son of the living God, he now belongs to the rock. Now the word rock, when it is figuratively used throughout the Old Testament, always means God. There are two exceptions in Deuteronomy 32, the Song of Moses, when Moses declares their rocks are not as our rock. In other words, their gods are false gods. They are not as our God. It refers always to God. So that when our Lord uses it, he used it in the full recognition that everyone knew the symbolic use of rock. Just as if I were to say today, stars and stripes, you would know I was talking about the American flag, the United States, symbolically. Blessed art thou. Thy name now is Petros, of the rock, belonging to the rock, because you have confessed me to be God incarnate. And upon this rock, myself, and the confession of me as God, I will build my church. I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. 
keys are given to the church. What does it mean? That means that every one of us are possessors of the keys. The symbol of the keys was an ancient one also in Israel. Again, we have abundant evidence of this. The scribes were called, the lawyers were called, possessors of the keys because they were interpreters of the law, of scripture. Whoever, therefore, faithfully interprets scripture has the keys of the kingdom. Therefore, when ministerially anyone binds and looses in faithfulness, in faithful use of the keys, in faithful use of scripture, what they do on earth is bound or loosed in heaven. Thus, if someone denies Christ, we tell them, you are not a Christian, our statement has binding power in heaven because we are speaking in terms of scripture. If we tell them that when they have repented and made restitution, they are forgiven, what we do has status in heaven. In other words, when we are faithful to the word of God, we have the keys of the kingdom. We can loose and bind men in the confidence that what we say to them is true as far as God is concerned. Now since, in this passage, He also tells Peter, on this rock I will build my church, this confession. He is speaking here not of the church as an institution, but as a confessing people. And the very word for church here has reference not to an institution, but to a congregation of people of people who stand in terms of a faith, a convocation, a collection, a congregation, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The word prevail here is again very important. Because we have so long been influenced by amillennial and premillennial eschatologies, our understanding of scripture has become a negative understanding. We look at things in a negative, in a defensive position. Now the Greek word for prevail is to be strong against. The gates of hell cannot be strong against the people of God. In what sense? It gives us a picture of a walled city, the gates, trying to defend itself against the people of God. Who is taking the initiative? God's people. And who cannot hold out against them? 
the gates of hell. So the very plain meaning of this is that perseverance includes perseverance unto victory. The gates of hell cannot hold out against the people of God. They shall be overrun and wiped out. They cannot stand. The doctrine of perseverance, therefore, in its biblical sense, is clearly postmillennial. It means that the elect are indefectible. It means that they persevere in their calling. It means that their creation mandate to exercise dominion and subdue the earth involves overwhelming and destroying the very gates of hell, as it were, all the forces of evil in this world. This is why St. Paul in Romans concludes by saying that the God of peace is going to bruise, that is, crush Satan's head under the feet of the saints. This is their destiny as the people of God. We can see, therefore, that the doctrine of perseverance as a result of pietism, and in part because of a lack of a good English word, has been limited to a negative victory of the individual against sin and against evil. That is, he holds out. For as it involves both his triumph, he that hath begun a good work in you will bring it to its conclusion. And the gates of hell shall not hold out against the people of God. We have therefore seriously limited the doctrine of perseverance. It has a positive meaning. It means victory. It means dominion. A very interesting fact is that the older hymns very definitely had this note of victory, as do, of course, all our Christmas carols. For example, a hymn of W. W. Howe declares, In the might of God arrayed, scatter sin and unbelief. Be the banner still unfurled, still unsheathed, the spirit sword till the kingdoms of the world are the kingdoms of the Lord. Now let's consider the implications of this. The doctrine of perseverance means more than just once saved, always saved. It means once saved, always saved, and triumphant in Christ. Now what would it do to a people who believe this? If you do not believe it, the doctrine begins to wither as it has in modern times. To the bare bones of, well, grin and bear it and you're going to survive, God has said so. Or it disappears entirely from the church. That's what happens when it is denied. But when it is affirmed, what does it do to a man? Let's take an example. John Knox. The good Scotchman. Now, John Knox 
was very different from the other men who began the Reformation in Scotland. Some of the other men, we have very, very moving accounts of their sufferings, of their martyrdom. Not suffered a great deal. For his faith, he was taken prisoner and turned over to the king of France to be a galley slave. I have a volume of source documents collected in the last century by a great scholar, Edwin Arbor, on the torments of Protestant slaves in French galleys. It's very grim reading. Knox was there for some years as a galley slave. It obviously took a toll on his life. He died at 59. A very vigorous man, his health after his mid-fifties just crumbled as a result of his galley years. And yet he never spoke about his sufferings. Never. A secular historian has commented about this in the most recent biography of Knox. I'd like to read what Jasper Ridley says when he comes to this aspect of the galley years of Knox. Knox had suffered for his faith in the galleys. The 16th century, like the 20th century, was an age of propaganda. And stories about the sufferings of martyrs and prisoners played an important part in the propaganda. Martyrs like Anne Askew, who for and others wrote simple and moving accounts of their sufferings in prison, of the tortures to which they were subjected, and the mockery and insults which they endured. Bale and John Fox published these stories and roused the pity and indignation of their Protestant readers. Knox might have written an account of the sufferings of a galley slave which nearly 200 years before Martel would have stirred the answer of Protestant Europe at the treatment of Protestants in the French galleys. He did not do so. In the whole of Knox's writings, there are only a few short references to the torments of the galleys. And in his history, there is nothing about torments. The references are to resistance, to caps kept on during religious ceremonies, the threats by the prisoners to stick the priest at mass. It is not an account of the sufferings of a martyr in a lonely prison cell, but of mass resistance by prisoners of war. As, as with some modern reminiscences of prisoners of war, the reader is almost sorry for the guards. Knox makes no attempt to arouse the reader's pity for himself. Knox may have been lucky enough to have had a relatively mild suscomité, to have been allowed his rest after a reasonable shift and never to have felt the whip on his bare shoulders as he pulled the oar. But there must have been at least many insults and humiliations which had to be borne 
Many instances of bullying and taunting and the raucous bawling of orders in the international language of the sea, when the dreaded shout of Aranke, Aranke, to make the galley slaves row, row faster. Not even for the sake of Protestant propaganda was Knox prepared to let the world know about them. He saw himself as trampling on his enemy, not writhing under his enemy's foot. And if there were moments in the galleys when he was trampled on, he was eager to forget them and to tell no one else. Many Protestants gloried in their suffering seemed almost to be seeking martyrdom. Knox did not want martyrdom. He wanted victory. He got it. Now, this is what a biblical doctrine of perseverance meant in the life of John Knox. It was linked to the right kind of eschatology. It was thoroughly biblical. And he was at all times, the victor. Gridley is right. You feel sorry for any of the prisoners, uh, any of the guards of a prisoner like Knox. As a matter of fact, some years after his death, when his daughter, Jane Welch, appeared before King James of England to ask permission for her husband, John Welch, the Reverend John Welsh, to return to Scotland so that he could die there. He was a dying man. King James was afraid even that let a dying man of Welch's faith back into the country. And he was so shocked, he didn't know who Jane Knox Welch was until then. He was so shocked her confidence and boldness of speech. She maintained all the proper forms before royalty, but there was no cringing and there was a boldness. He wanted to know who she was and who her father was. And when she said, I am the daughter of John Knox, and he said, are there any sons of your father? And she said, none living, sir. There were two who died in infancy. King James threw up his hands and said, Thank God, if there were a male like you, my throne wouldn't be safe. And he meant it. You see, they were programmed for victory because they knew the meaning of God's word and they knew the meaning of the doctrine of perseverance. Today, men have abandoned it, or they've reduced it to its lowest common denominator, and what has happened? Most of the church has forsaken the doctrine of perseverance. The church as an institution has picked it up, and the state has picked it up. Read John Dewey's book on the great community and the great society. The book about the perseverance unto victory of the great society. And after all, the Marxists have the same idea. The dictatorship of the proletariat cannot lose. It will persevere unto victory. 
doctrine that belongs to us. These people have adopted because the church has denied its heritage. But St. John tells us that Jesus Christ, the begotten of God, keeps us. And that wicked one toucheth him not. He cannot deflect us from the faith and our calling under God. Exercise dominion and to subdue the earth. Jesus Christ is the new Adam, the second Adam, has reestablished us in that calling which the first Adam forsook. He has begun a good work in us, shall be accomplished. How far-reaching that victory will be, Scripture over and over again makes very, very clear. For example, Isaiah declares, the wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it. The excellency of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. Strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. And the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as in heart and the tongue of the dumb Satan. For in the wilderness shall waters break out and trees in the desert. A week ago, when Dorothy and I drove through the desert areas of southern Nevada and Death Valley, <clears throat> we enjoyed going over our minds the feelings of some of the first pioneer wagons that hit that country. And we thought rather humorously but there must have been some mothers, who, uh, some wives who said, Mother told me I should have never married you. To hit that bleak and desolate area which has an awesome grandeur to it and a beauty. But consider how discouraging it must have been to some of those pioneer women coming from, say, New England or Pennsylvania or areas like that. So it must have been very difficult for some of those women. On the other hand, from what we know about the faith of many of them, we do know that there were more than a few who came out seeing things in terms of Scripture. And seeing that in some future day, the wilderness would blossom. That by the grace of God and by the work of redeemed man, the whole earth would be transformed and would be a garden.
I'm sure many of them looked upon that country with eyes like that. We know that they did. And so must we. For until we see things in terms of the biblical doctrine of perseverance, we cannot have the faith of a man like John Knox, who worked for and gained victory under circumstances far, far more difficult than anything we have known. This is the meaning of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. It is perseverance in the faith, the trial. This is our calling. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who of thy grace and mercy has redeemed us in Jesus Christ and has confirmed us in that faith and decreed that we shall persevere therein till we accomplish that which thou hast called us to do. We thank thee that thou hast called us with so great a calling, who hope so assured a victory be so glorious a life in Christ. We praise thee for the blessings of the year past, and we rejoice in the opportunities of the year to come. In Jesus' name, Amen. Are there any questions now, first of all, about our lesson? Yes. Uh, could you speak up? My hearing is not too good with this cold. How would I relate the explorations of this earth to the exploration of space? Very clearly, the explorations of the Western Hemisphere after Columbus had a very strong Christian motivation. A very good book on the theological premises of those explorations has been written by Lewis B. Wright, Gold, Glory, and the Gospel, just published. Lewis B. Wright, Gold, Glory, and the Gospel. Now, Wright is not a Christian, but he has come closer to doing justice to the Christian principles and motives of these men than most men have. The purposes of the explorations of space, as stated by NASA, are anti-Christian, their purpose is to prove evolution. They stated it emphatically. This is why they were so very much shaken and discouraged, if you were listening to radio and television at the time of the Mars probe, that they found no life there. It was a traumatic experience. So there is a difference. I'm not saying there could not be some exploration of the moon on a different premise, 
But basically, that's why it has had anti-Christian premise. Yes. Yes. That's the latest uh, theory. That Mars is in the process of moving towards life and of developing life. Yes. It's the concept rock. I never thought of that. I really don't know. That would be a very worthwhile point to investigate. But I couldn't say. Yes. Petros and Petra. P-E-T-R-A, rock. Petros, Peter. Yes. If, no, if Petra is the nominative. Well, in the Greek, the construction in the Greek and the uh, English will vary. Yes. Yes. I know, in the English it has that construction, but uh, it's, it's nominative. Mm-hmm. I'll check the Greek again on that when I go home, but uh, the nominative is Petra, and the Petra, P-E-T-R-A, and that's the name of the capital city, you know, of uh, ancient Edom. Yes. Alfred's statement on this I have in uh, full in my uh, Foundations of Social Order. So if you'll look up uh, Alfred there or... Uh, yes. Genesis 15, what? Uh, innumerable. Just as you cannot count the stars, so you will not be able to count your progeny. Just as the stars cover the heavens, so your progeny will cover the earth. Those by faith who are of you. Well, uh, you mean the literal number of stars. 